Welcome back to another episode of DSLR Film Woo-hoo! New Podcast. I've got Mitch from Planet 5D joining me today to discuss some new cameras, some lenses, and some memory technology. Mitch, what have you been up to? <laughs> Planet 5D. I can't get my damn sound effects to work, so I'm mad. Is that the shortcut anyway, key problems? Uh, yeah, it's operator error, I'm sure. Some fancy little widget on my Mac is causing my fancy-ass software not to work. You know what's <laughs> exciting for me? What's that? I spent money on camera gear this week. What'd you buy? <gasps> Big excitement. I bought a $65 cheap-ass grip for my 5D Mark III. Yeah. Oh, sure. Rubbed in the sound of it. You, what, um, what brand did you buy? Was it the Pixel brand or? Nah, I think it's called Velo. Okay. Uh, B and H has this big WPPI sale going on, and um, I'll 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 tease you. They actually sent me this. For those of you watching, you see me holding up my gift card, fancy schmancy B and H gift card. They sent me a little cash. So is that like uh, fifteen bucks or ten bucks, yeah. something like that? Six thousand dollars. No. Yeah. Uh, anyway, and I ended up not buying it through B and H because uh, shocker, uh, <laughs> because I could get it on Amazon Prime for the same price and get next day or two day shipping as opposed to B and H, which wouldn't get it here till Monday. But anyway, I saw it in their flyer for all their WPPI stuff that they have on sale and. I was talking to a couple of people about, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I actually had my hands on a 1DC, not a 1DC, a 1DX a couple of weeks ago. And it, you know, it's the full body with the grip already embedded in it. Anyway, uh, it, it just made me lust for a grip again. And I, I've never wanted to spend like the $250, $300 Canon once for a grip. And I did a tiny bit of research and it looks like this one's fairly decent, although, you know, it's like like anything that's not a manufacturer's brand, you're risking uh, some lack of quality, shall I say. But it got good ratings, and so I figured for 65 bucks, what the hell, I'll spend it. Now, is this one of the ones with the uh, built-in intervalometer, so you have time-lapse controls as well as extra no. battery life? No. Oh, those, those are really nice to have if you, uh, if you like time-lapse. Yeah, sure. Uh, but no, I didn't, I didn't, I just, I just wanted to try it out, to be honest with you, just to have something different. Well, we're making announcements. Um, I Uh actually, I gave up my last 5D Mark III, uh, this week. Rest in peace, sir. Uh, well, so I've been watching the, the Canon 5D Mark III prices bounce up and down over the last uh, six months and they've dropped as low as $1,500 and all the way uh, up to $2,100. And I originally paid $2,400 for my Canon 5D Mark III, and I felt that at $2,000, $400 investment for a four-year, three-and-a-half-year use life cycle, but time to let her go and uh, replace her with an A7S Mark II. So wow. um, I do have one Canon body still left in my collection, the 6D, and uh, I still shoot on that. Um, I patiently await Canon's release of the 5D Mark IV, which could bring me back into the Canon camp. Uh, knock on wood, but uh, that's a... Uh... You're a brave man. I mean, you've got a lot of bodies sitting around. I mean, I, I have been shooting a lot with my 5D Mark III lately for stills. You remember they do still stills? <laughs> um, and... and... I, I saw you post that you were doing that, and I was like, oh, man. You know, that's probably a good thing to consider because resale value on that sucker is going to plummet when they mark announce the next version. And I don't know whether I want the next version. You know, it's – I don't know. I, am, I haven't decided what to do, but it's certainly tempting to try to – I still have my 5D Mark II, so I could theoretically shoot and still get decent photos, right? Oh, yeah. And uh, actually, here, let me share this real quick so you guys can see this. This is um, this is the original price down here that I paid for my uh, 5D Mark uh, III, one of them anyway. And uh, this particular one was uh, slightly used, but it was before Magic Lantern came out with the raw hack. So the price was plummeting and bouncing around the $2,400 range. And uh, 
I did have the grip, the actual grip, Mitch. I, I think that's yeah, not I even the, the fake one. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I will tell you, as far as the grip is concerned, uh, getting back to that, is that uh, shooting video with the grip can be a little problematic, especially if you're running Magic Lantern firmware on your camera body. Uh, there's been a few times where mine has aired out, given me weird purple or green lines across the screen. And it turned out because the pins weren't pushing strong enough against the connector inside of the battery grip, it wasn't providing enough power and the camera was brown outing on huh. me while filming. So uh, it's something to be aware of if you ever run into yeah. weird stuff filming. As far as the 5D Mark III body goes, I do have uh, two projects coming up, uh, two feature length projects that... Uh, we're asking me to bring 100% 4K gear to the ca table. And uh, the budget allowed me to uh, charge them for a camera. So yeah. I felt that this was the time to sell off my 5D Mark III, uh, finish this project and the next project out with the, Canon, or the Sony A7S Mark II and then see where Canon sits from there. I have not gotten rid of any of my Canon glass, which is very substantial investment right now. But uh, I'm considering moving further into the Sony camp if uh, Canon uh -oh. in the next like six to eight months doesn't kick out something uh, in the three to $4,000 range that meets my needs and expectations. Uh-oh. Hey, did... you know what's coming up? What's coming up? Were you done? Yes, I'm done. The sadness is out of me. <laughs> uh nab is in a month oh man you gonna be there mitch yeah uh, well yeah i'm gonna be there hey i'm gonna be there too we should uh do lunch <laughs> yeah at the, one of those crappy ass little food stands they've got holy cow maybe we can meet at one of the uh the exhibits that has the free beer starting at four with the yeah, uh the hand sandwiches that would be great um the reason, one of the reasons I bring it up is the fact that I uh, and you are will be doing the NAB live blog again this year. For those of you who weren't following last year, the live blog is a whole bunch of people uh, like DJ and myself uh, out on the show floor, tweeting or basically texting, sort of taking photos, maybe maybe even doing periscopes. Who knows? I, I don't know. Have you ever done a periscope, DJ? Uh, no, I'm not really into that uh, ephemeral um, video stuff. So anyway, there, there, there will be lots of sites contributing. Uh, last year, we had about 20, I think, 20 reporters from the show floor. I'm working on getting a whole bunch more this year. Uh, we had over 100 and I think 120,000 people view the live blog last year. So it's much like the Apple events, you know, where you go and the people are live blogging and you get this continuous updates of data coming in from several different reporters. And so uh, DJ will be hosting it on DSLRFilmNoob.com. Uh, Canon Rumors will be hosting it. Planet 5D will be hosting it. So you can find it in a bunch of different places. But go to DSLRFilmDoop.com for that NAB Live blog. Uh, I will say it's really handy, guys. Um, even as a person that visits the event every year, I cannot see everything that I want to see in the time that I'm there. And it's great to have other people running around and looking for little nuggets of interesting stuff. And I mean, some of these booths, if you've ever been to NAB, are hidden clear in the back behind some other booth. You don't even know they're there. And it'll be some Chinese company or, uh, you know, whatever with like the weirdest, coolest thing that you wanted to see, but you didn't right. even find it because they could only afford to buy this tiny booth space hidden out, you know, where no one even goes in hall, you know, whatever that it's right. way back in the back. And yeah. you get overwhelmed with so many things that you want to look at that you even, you miss some of this stuff. So yep. it's really great to have a, a stream like that from multiple people everybody investigating all the cool stuff and if and if you're out there listening and you are going to nab and want to be involved in that as a show floor reporter we're paying you a whopping zero dollars <laughs> but if you consider the fact that if you tweet i mean everybody goes to the show right and they tweet and they post on facebook and whatever and they might be have their tweet seen by the five friends that they have uh, but if you're on the NAB Live blog as a reporter, you're going to be in front of 100,000 people. So a little bit more visibility 
and you're doing the same thing that you would normally do in your social media. So let's let's go. If you're interested, send me an email at planetmitchatme.com and we'll hook you up. Awesome. On that note, I think it is probably time yeah. for... For the news. The first thing up is uh, this camera, and I say this camera because <laughs> it's a camera you've probably seen before in various states. Uh, Canon has a lower level T without the I round group of cameras, and this is the Canon T6 body. Uh, this camera was announced just recently. You'll notice the specs here are very similar to what I will reveal in a second, which is the <laughs> Canon T2i from about five years ago. Yes, that's right, folks. We're getting an 18-megapixel sensor, the same APS-C sensor we've seen before, a Digic 4 processor, a uh, 1080p video mode, wow, and Woo! up to 1200 or 12,800 ISO capabilities. There is one minor difference between these. It's a Digic 4 Plus processor, and it has Wi-Fi capability. At about $800, I had to go look and find out what the current price of a T2i body is. Looks like it's $209. Uh, I have to stop you, by the way. You're reading the $800 off of my notes there, and I apologize because that's the T6i price. Uh-oh. The T6 price is 550 bucks. Really? Yeah, That's still, so, it's still fairly yeah. expensive. Right, I, I, I just, but I wanted to be clear for anybody who's listening slash watching that uh, I, DJ was reading my little comment there. Well, my note is that the T6i <laughs> has the articulating screen, and I said, but that's over eight hundred dollars because that was the T6i price. But anyway, you've just changed it to, but anyway. Uh, so the T6i has a lot, a lot more great features, right? Like an articulating screen. I don't know what else it has. It's just, you got to remember we're all, all of us who make video kind of stuff are probably going, <gasps> so what? Uh, this is a consumer camera. It's aimed at consumers. It's not aimed at us everyday filmmaker kind of folks. So take that. With a grain of salt. Well, the part I'm picking at here is actually the T4, I believe, was a reissue of Canon's T1i. Uh, that camera was pretty much identical to a camera they had released, you know, four or five years ago. And then they bring it out again under fanfare <laughs> and fiction to let you know that you can now buy that old camera for a brand new price that is substantially higher than the previous uh, model and the, really the feature set added to this is is very minuscule i yep. still shoot with a t2i and i'm holding that up right here for those of you who are listening and this body is fine you know if you are starting out i would not say go for the the t6 unless you need the wi-fi feature and even if you need the wi-fi feature you can get a wi-fi dongle for your t2i for in the price range of 40 bucks, 35 bucks, and get that feature too. I don't know. I mean, it's even for photographers, uh, if you're a filmmaker, especially the ability to add Magic Lantern to the T2i still makes it a very viable, excellent camera. The fact that it has the same sensor as this and the same capabilities means that for stills, you're still going to get good stills out of this, and the glass in front of it will really make a difference. I'm just kind of surprised that Canon veils these old cameras under new names and releases it. I wonder if they just have a plethora of 18 megapixel sensors laying around in piles in the Canon warehouse <laughs> that they need to get rid of. It's, it's, it's interesting, and it's all about marketing, right? Trying to get in front of the people. I, I, do they even still sell the T2i? Uh, not oh, yeah. new. It's discontinued quite some time ago, but they're, they were so popular that the used and refurbished market is glut with the T2i. Right. Uh, there's 25 or 30 of them available on Amazon right now. They're all over eBay. Well sold, easy to find, easy to come by. But, uh, but Canon is also still selling the T3i, aren't they? Are they? The is that... T3i or T3. I swear they were last I looked. Now I have to check. Uh, which... 
Because if you look down on Amazon for the longest time after they came out with the T4 and the T5 and even the T6, the T3, I, and I, and I wish they would never do this. Why do you do a T6 and a T6I? This is ridiculous naming. We go back to our naming complaints. <laughs> uh, and, and the T6I was announced, what, a year, a year and a half ago, and now they just come out with the T6? It's like, uh, okay. But anyway, the T3 or the T3i was for the longest time the number one camera DSLR sold on Amazon. And even after they came out with the four and the fives, and so maybe it's not there anymore. Maybe they finally discontinued it. But Canon kept putting it out because people get buying the damn thing. I'm looking right now, Mitch, and sure okay. enough, you can still buy the Canon T3i for $687 new. Um, I would recommend the used price of $276 because that seems like a bit more reasonable. But for, like I said, if you if you went to the lists of the most popular DSLRs on, on Amazon, <laughs> T3i was there for a long, long time, Yeah, even it's... after the 4 and the 5 came out which slayed the heck out of me. The thing is, uh, the T3i was the first one to add the flip-out screen, and people love the flip-out yep. screen. The, well, I always tell people the T2i, as far as uh, hacking capabilities, is superior to the T3i. Uh, the T3i has a flip-out screen, and that is the seller for many people because with this camera right here, you either have to use an external monitor or you have to be behind it. So if you're in yep. front of the camera or trying to shoot yourself or something like that, uh, and yourself. Uh, film yourself, <laughs> photographer. Yes, let's not to get violent here. Uh, the T3i is still a viable option, and it's kind of weird because if you look at the iterations from the T3i all the way up to the T6i, <laughs> there isn't really a whole lot in the no. way it changes. Uh, no. They didn't even implement a new sensor tech in the T lineup until they've got past. What I think the T5i, the T6i is the first one to have a new sensor in it. Before that, they were reusing the 18 megapixel sensor that's been available for who knows how long. Yeah, it's, it's ridiculous. It's, yeah, it goes back to the uh, original Kevin, Kevin, Canon 7D, the Kevin. Let's call it the Kevin. Yes. All right, moving on down the line uh, here, let's talk about a lens that is sort of strange in the current market. This is the Tokina 14 to 20 millimeter f2 lens. Now, I do applaud Tokina for coming out with a lens that is f2 as opposed to f2.8, which is the standard zoom. The zoom range is pretty limited in this. What I am surprised by, though, is the price. Now, I do know that Tokina makes lenses that are built like a tank. But at 899 versus the Sigma 18 to 35 millimeter f1.8 at 749, do you think this will sell, Mitch? <laughs> okay, you're asking me, the non-lens guy. Yeah, uh, you know, I, I th thought I'd throw this one at you just in case. Yeah, 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 yeah. And well, it does come with a front and rear lens cap and a lens hood, so that's good. <laughs> I will say that at Tokina in general, if you've ever used a Tokina lens, they have this really good sort of click-forward bayonet focus ring. And the focus ring has a ton of rotation that gives you really accurate uh, focus control as opposed to that sort of really soft throw that you get out of uh, <laughs> Canon lenses occasionally <laughs> with nice hard stops. Uh, so in that range, Tokina does a great job. Their wide-angle lenses are phenomenal but when you can get a little bit more range out of the 18 to 35 from sigma and again these are both uh, aps-c sensor lenses so you got to figure in your crop factor 18 uh, would work out to somewhere in the 28 range and uh, 14 works out to 22 range so not too wide but fairly wide but the 35 side gives you a little bit more reach and it's f1.8 versus f2. Now, I know some people will do the same thing I do, and they're like, well, that's not very much difference between f2 and f1.8, but the, the numbers, the number's smaller, Mitch. You got to go yeah, with the, the, the it's number. It's all about the number, isn't it? <coughs> I well, don't know. Yeah. It's, it, it's intriguing, and, and when we get, we're going to talk about another lens just for the heck of it, and I'm going to ask you a couple of questions after we get talked 
done talking about that because I think it's it's critical. We talked about these lenses and let's let's go on to the next one if you're done with that one. Yeah, there's nothing else to say about that other than it's <laughs> up, it's for sale. If you're interested, check it out. Uh, otherwise, the Sigma 18 to 35 is a very nice APS-C sized lens. Now, the next lens on the list, since this seems to be lens day today, is actually the Leoa. I don't know if uh, I'm pronouncing Yeah, I don't know this one. It's uh, So someone can type in the YouTube comments and tell me how to pronounce this. A-L-A-O-W-A, 105mm F2 lens. Uh, this is a manual focus lens that features Something weird. Don't know if I quite understand what they're trying to explain here, but uh, this lens has an aptization element, which yeah. uh, causes light fall off on the sides, which <laughs> I assume is vignetting, like a, a built-in vignetting. Is is that what I'm understanding from this description, Mitch? Uh, no. Very good question because that's sort of what it it sounds like, and I think their description's a little bit uh, confusing. But what they're talking about is not vignetting in terms of less light. What they're talking about is defocusing. They're calling this lens, and and I confess I'm the one that sent it to you. So for those people out there listening and watching, uh, this one's my fault. Uh, they sent this to me as a press release, and they call it the Boca Dreamer, or Bokeh Dreamer, depending upon how you say Boca. And they're they're marketing it as super sharp, super super Boca, and very little color aberration, chromatic aberration. So there, it's like hitting the trifecta of the different buzzwords, right? So so this defocusing that they're talking about is is it's interesting because a lot of people talk about specific lenses having great bokeh and i don't know whether lens designers how they specifically go after it but these guys are specifically going after saying our bokeh is great because we put this apodization element in our lenses and we're specifically targeting awesome bokeh well, so I can tell you. That's what made it fascinating. I can tell you what makes a good bokeh for myself. And I say bokeh. You can say bokeh. But when you say bokeh, <laughs> it feels like I'm holding up a, a thing of flowers and generally confuses people. Uh, so for me, what I enjoy is rounded bokeh, uh, very smooth edges around the outside of the elements, the orbs that are generated in the background. And that, uh, that look is usually from the number of blades and the roundness of the blades used in the aperture. So if you think about the square bokeh that you see, uh, that's maybe five to eight blades that they're using, and they're very well squared off, which gives you sort of a stop sign hexagonal-looking bokeh. Uh, the nicer-looking bokeh is generally a smooth aperture ring that's rounded all the way around so that it doesn't create harsh edges in that out-of-focus uh, light, soft, bokeh ball area, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> this guy, though, uh, the image, you know, I was confused by this. Uh, Mitch just shot this to me uh, pretty quick this morning. The description is, is strange. Do you know what they're doing exactly to achieve uh, this so-called perfect bokeh? Uh, you know, what does this element do exactly that makes it uh, produce better bokeh? Is, is it soft focus uh, around the aperture rings is something of that nature. I, <laughs> DJ, I don't have a clue. Uh, what you see is what you get in terms of this. Now, you did say it was manual focus. I believe it is. Uh, is that incorrect? I, I have. I don't know because the press release doesn't say anything about that. It says it's a trans-focused lens, whatever the hell that means. Uh, and and they are shipping EF and Nikon and Sony different mounts, uh, but they don't specify whether it's autofocus or not, which is a good question. Uh, well, I have been trying to get them to send me one for evaluation just because I'm curious to see how well it works or doesn't work. Uh, but the only thing they really talk about is um, 
and, and they confuse me to be frank uh, because if you read the the thing uh it's it's it says they have a stepless 14 blade perfectly circular circular aperture in conjunction with the apodization if we're saying that right gives the lens the ability to produce smooth and pleasing bokeh or bokeh but then they say a few sentences later the eight bladed aperture is and I'm like, wait a minute, you just said it was a 14 blade. Yep. So I'm confused by their press release. I'll be quite frank with you. So I don't know how it works or anything else. And I I don't know if it's autofocus or manual focus because they didn't tell in the press release. It's uh, got to be manual was... focus. Look at the size of the lens. I mean, there's no way they can fit a f- uh, focus motor in there. And if you you look at the markings on the lens, they've really gone out of their way to give you a distance and depth measurements, as well as a yeah. really long throw, it appears, uh, noted by the uh, the length of the uh, distance indicators all the way around. Yeah. So yeah. I would say, I would, I would bet you uh, a substantial margin that this is a manual focus lens. Yeah. Well, it's six ninety nine. Uh, pre-order starts today, and there's ship free shipping. You can look that up. But so it was curious to me. Uh, I, I'm curious to see if they actually will send me one for review, just for the hell of it. Uh, but I got a couple of questions that I thought about when I was when I was looking this over, and I thought, hey, DJ's the perfect guy to, to ask this question because. You know, I was sitting here with my little uh, B&H gift card going, hey, maybe I could buy some new lenses, and there's not enough money on it to do that. <laughs> uh, and I thought to myself, well, there are so many lenses out there, and here comes these new ones like the Tokina we just talked about and and this Venus optics thing. And I'm like, How, what do you look at to evaluate a new lens? I mean – there are some pictures and they look kind of nice, but what do you do, DJ, in order to decide what lens is going to be your next purchase? Well, ironically, the specs are the last thing you look at. The first thing you got to look at when you're buying a lens is your budget because, <laughs> man, uh, glass can get expensive fast. And because there are so many options out there, you have to determine what you can spend first to determine what kind of lens class and bracket you can make it into. Uh, a lot of people immediately yearn for the L-series lenses with the red stripe, but if your budget is tight, you can get a lot more value out of some of the other brand lenses that are available or some of the lower level lenses that are available from Canon. Uh, generally, I do not like the 51.8, which is uh, super plasticky, and a lot of people give me gruff about that, but the reason is is the back element that attaches to your camera is made out of plastic, and I don't like things that are made out of plastic. So I guess for me, the number one thing is how much money do you have, and I want metal connected to metal when it goes on my yeah. camera. Uh, yeah. After that, do you want to shoot primes? Do you want to shoot uh, zooms? You know, And if you have all the monies, uh, the $2,000 zooms from Canon... Go for it, man. Spend as much as you can. If you don't, there are some great value options from Tamron. Uh, I don't generally sit there and look at the light charts and the chromatic abrasion and the pincushioning and the corner light fall off. Um, I like it sharp, but if it's not completely sharp across the entire lens, I'm not shooting a lot of stills, so that doesn't affect me for video per se. Now, when you start rolling into 4K video, that is a little bit more predominant, but at 1080p, especially with Canon cameras, uh, because of the pixel bending that happens with the sensor, uh, a lot of that uh, ultra sharpness in expensive lenses is sort of a waste in video mode. Yeah. I, I don't want to tell people it's a complete waste because it is somewhat noticeable, but uh, not so much so to ruin a shot. That's such a broad question, Mitch, that I could just is. go on all day. But It is. I think, but... I think instead of uh, uh, saying what I would pick, I would say, here's a good budget list. Look at Sigma lenses, because if you want a set of primes, Sigma has done a great job with the 24-1.4, the 35-1.4, and the 50-1.4. The 85-1.4, they haven't turned that into an art series lens yet, but once they do, they will cover a very good range of prime lenses and those are all priced in the six 
fifty to seven hundred and fifty dollar range, uh, roughly half the price of Canon's glass. Uh, all have phenomenal uh, image quality, very good sharpness. Bokeh is not quite as good and is, um, I don't want to say luscious, but that's the word that comes to mind <laughs> as some of my Canon L-series glass, but they make up for that with uh, better performance in the chromatic aberration market. Uh, definitely the 3514 beats the original 3514 from Canon. Uh, that is not the, uh, not to be said for the 3514 Mark II, but still, for those prices... I mean, I think Sigma's offering up a ton of value in the Prime department. Mitch, what do you got on that? Well, so my next question is, I mean, we talk a lot, a lot about lenses, uh, and you just said that you don't pay attention to specs, but yet... I know a I lot mean, of the I, specs. You do, you, you know a lot of the specs, which is, which is awesome, which is why we love to talk about them. But as, as a consumer... You know, if if you were advising somebody who's let's just say they they've got they've got a thousand bucks, right? Just to throw a number at it, and they're thinking about buying a new lens. Do do you tell them to look at samples? Do you tell them to go to their local camera shop and try a couple out? You know, in the store. Uh, it, how does one narrow things down? It, it, and one of the things that bothered me a lot when I was just fooling around looking at lenses is you have to start paying attention to things like what sensor is it designed for? Because some some lenses are specifically designed for APS-C sensors. Uh, do you do you just say screw that and just buy lenses that are designed for full frame in case you eventually buy a full frame? Or you know how do you? I'm asking several questions. Oh, no problem. Let's start with the first one, uh, evaluating your lenses. Uh, Flickr is a great resource. Uh, You can search by camera and by lens in order to determine uh, what the image was shot on with the metadata that's available. And you can go through, if you're shooting stills especially, that is a great resource to go through and take a look at what other people are doing with that. Now, the other thing to consider if you're shooting with uh, just shooting stills and not video is that... A lot of the issues in lenses, especially Canon lenses, uh, can be corrected very easily in Lightroom. Uh, while it's not a perfect correction, uh, those things aren't nearly as big of a problem as they used to be because they have lens profiles that uh, account for uh, purple fringing and some of the other issues and light fall off that you run into. So you can correct for some of that. Uh, as far as testing the lenses out, if I'm buying a $2,000 lens, I like to go to somewhere like lensrental.com and rent the lens for a weekend. Now, that sounds like a waste of money, but really, uh, for about $40 or $50, you can rent that lens for four days, five days, and just use it continuously and get a feel for it and determine if that lens meets your needs. A lot of portrait photographers, if you talk to them, uh, they're always jonesing for this this next lens that's going to make their portraits perfect. Uh, you know, whether it's the 85-1.2 or whether it's the 70-200 f2.8, uh, they have this idea that if only I get that lens, that'll be it. And instead of testing it out, they buy it, and then right. they are disappointed with the results or don't like it or, or what have you. And while you are adding to the, the cost of the lens by renting it for a certain amount of time, it's way better to know what you're getting into than it is to simply get into it and hope for the best. Now, I use an online source because I don't have a local camera rental store available, but if you live in a major metropolitan area, uh, there are tons of places that rent lenses, all the L-series lenses, uh, many of the other camera bodies available also if you're looking for a different body. Now, when you said Prime versus APS-C, I generally recommend people buy uh, APS or uh, or full frame. It's not prime. I'm sorry. I generally recommend people buy full frame lenses. And while that's a little bit more expensive, uh, every person I've ever talked to that says, oh, no, I'm just going to stick with APS-C. 
they end up doing the APS-C sell-off where, you know, yep. they have the Sigma 30 millimeter F1.4, which is a beautiful lens, by the way, and they sell that off. They, they get an APS-C zoom and then they sell that off. And, you know, and pretty soon you're buying stuff again and replacing stuff that was in your collection previously that if you'd have gotten it full frame to begin with, you'd have been in a better spot. Now, that's going to be a little bit more expensive, but if this is a hobby or a trade that you're going to pick up and do for a long time, uh, lenses are the best investment versus bodies. So getting something that gives you a little bit of breathing room to move up to, say, a 6D body or a 5D Mark III or Mark II body, uh, or you know, anytime you want to upgrade your body, you will have a lens lineup that's compatible. Uh, I think I got all the questions. What else you got, Mitch? Yeah, I I, I threw a lot at you in, in one fell swoop, and and I apologize, but but you're doing a great job of answering these questions. It, and it's just, I mean, it it's not stuff we always typically talk about, right? You know, it's it's really good to run through specs and stuff, but when you actually sit down and and have to push the buy button. Uh, interestingly enough, and, and I do advocate your local store if you have one, because uh, I was at my local uh, uh, camera shop, Schiller's Camera. Cha-ching! Where's my damn sound effect? Uh, and it's, you know, I spent a couple hours in there talking to the sales guys, and, and it, you can get some really great advice while you're there. And... You know, we ended up talking about, never mind. I won't go down that rabbit trail. But don't forget those people are there. Uh, it is a little unfortunate that I looked at pricing, at renting some lenses at, at my local shop. Yeah. And it's actually more expensive to rent them locally than it is to go with somebody like Lens Pro to go, which is my favorite place. Uh, and have them shipped to you in a FedEx box and then ship them back, I, which I find amazing that they haven't changed their pricing uh, to, to come down a little bit to match what the online people do. Uh, but either way, I think that's fabulous advice in terms of especially lens selection, although if you're, if you're stuck in something like B&H is offering WPPI specials and you're, you're like itching to push the buy button, you're kind of... <laughs> You know, have some patience and realize that those things will go back on sale later on when you really need it, unless you have to have it right the second. Now, I don't want to advocate uh, being a shifty individual. Uh, no. But, no, no, uh, no, 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 no. I wasn't trying to say that. Oh, no. But the one other thing I've seen uh, newer camera uh, buyers do, and it's it kind of makes me grumpy a little bit, but it's also like, well, I guess you're being very frugal, is they'll go on to... Uh, Amazon or eBay, because eBay's recently gotten very good about a return policy, <laughs> and they will buy a lens from Amazon, play with it for like fifteen or twenty days, and then say, you know, I don't this this doesn't work right on my camera, and because it's such a vague, it doesn't work right on my camera. Amazon just accepts it back into the warehouse and. Well, I can't advocate that because yeah. it hurts everybody and it, you know, eats right. into the cost of lenses for the vast majority of us. Uh, I've seen it done. Yeah. I've seen it done. So well, there, the, there are ways, the other, I guess. I'm sorry. The other thing that people do, which I, I disagree with, is go down to your local camera shop and talk to them for two hours and, and look at lenses <laughs> or bodies or whatever. And then go home and buy from an online retailer. Yeah, that's a jerk Because move. you don't have to pay sales tax or whatever. There's you got value. I mean, if you're gonna do if you're gonna go down to this shop and you got value from them, spend a little bit of extra money and thank them because those people are working their tails off. And if you have a problem with your camera, body, lens, whatever, you can walk in there and talk to somebody about it as opposed to dealing with online order. So there, there don't be baiting and switching. I mean, we, we complain when somebody, I mean, if it used to be like, if you'd call up one of the New York camera shops, you remember those days where you'd call them up and, and try to order something before online existed. And they would go, well, you really should buy this one. Don't buy that. Oh, that one's no good Buy this one. And it was, you know, in the kit and all this other crap. And I'm like, no, I just want the thing I told you I wanted. <laughs> uh, but 
you know, there there is great value in your local shops. Uh, they are great people that need your support. And I know I love online shopping to have something delivered right to my house, but don't go buy, don't go use them as a resource and then buy somewhere else. I hate people that do that. Don't do it. As far as the uh, cost of rentals locally goes, it really depends on your market. Um, I was working in New York about a year and a half or two years ago yeah. now. It might be longer than that. It seems like yesterday. But uh, the, <laughs> the job there, uh, we went and priced uh, rentals at a, a local shop there, and not even you know a huge uh, a retail outlet. And I think we were paying 40 bucks or $45 for a week rental on each of our lenses, yeah. which is, wow. that's a phenomenal, I mean, yeah, that's a really good price, guys. You know, yeah. that's that's great. And, you know, that included uh, insurance and that included all the other things that you want for protection in case you do something really stupid. And I don't even know how they afforded to rent them out because it was it was less than the cost of the online retailers, although there is shipping involved in that. So it was great. And I've run into the same thing in Los Angeles, uh, in Chicago. Um, in Houston, uh, there were great places to rent where it was it was more affordable or at least uh, on par with the rental prices online. So uh, I always advocate keeping those stores open if at all possible. Same yep. with, you know, like I don't want all the record stores to go away. I don't want all the camera stores to go away. I want to at some point be able to walk into the store and, you know, mess around with something or buy something there. Or if I need, you know, a lens cap or something strange that you can only get at a camera store, I don't want to have Amazon or B&H be the only solution where yep. I have to wait three to seven days to get my freaking stuff. So yep. sometimes you need it now and those stores yep. are important. <laughs> I got one more thing to say as a, as another tip, and and I have gone quite a ways down the farther path on this, but uh, there is there is another resource called Camera Lens, and that's L E N D S. I don't know if we've talked. I think we mentioned this once before. Is this the peer to peer camera yes. lending? So in the United States, and I apologize for those of you outside the U.S., but CameraLens.com. That's L E N D S. Uh, is a is a place where you can sign up and rent out your gear or rent gear from other people. So peer-to-peer rentals, uh, they do have insurance like you uh, just mentioned with uh, rentals. And so it's, a, it's another option. Maybe, maybe you've got a bunch of gear sitting around that you don't use very often. Uh, there aren't very many people in St. Louis on camera lens. Uh, they just recently have had a couple of people join, and I keep swearing I'm going to put my stuff up there. Uh, but I think in the bigger markets, it's probably a really good resource to be able to find something that you can borrow from another photographer slash videographer or filmmaker. Uh, it's just another tip I thought I'd throw at you. Oh, man, I'm looking in my area right here, and uh, there's actually quite a good selection of kit yeah, available for rental services. Yep, and these prices and, and it's inexpensive. Bad. Yeah, they they look pretty decent. Although I, I, I question the guy that rents out his um, his SD card. That to me, <laughs> that may be a little overboard yeah. there. Um, the only other thing that that is, uh, you know, uh, you got to be watch watchful for. It's good to have friends and peers. But you have to be careful in those kind of environments uh, because you may be going to somebody's house to pick something up as opposed to going to a camera shop. You know, so you, you do have that consideration. If you're a, lo- a young lady and you're going to some dirty old man's house, I don't know, you might be a little cautious. Uh, so that I just, I don't know, throw that out there. All right, moving on. We've got to beat that one like a <laughs> something, something. Uh, we've got some uh, new standards for uh, SD, SD cards. cards. And these SD cards are basically using version uh, 5.0 of the standard, which is going to be labeled as V60 and V90, respectively. These are designed specifically for uh, both multi-stream recording as well 
as 8K video in the future. Now, this appears to be sort of the SD standard trying to keep up with stuff like CFast and the QXD formats that have kind of surpassed SD in Nikon's cameras, and I suspect we'll see either CFast or uh, QXD in Canon's next line of cameras. Now, looking at this standard here, it does appear that they're doing some good stuff and I'm going to go over this really quickly and uh, high level so that you don't have to dig deep into the, the nuts and bolts of this. But basically, what they're doing is they're allowing the card to address up to 37 blocks simultaneously, uh, which huh? that means uh, memory blocks, which means that they can write sequentially and spread that write out across up to 37 different uh, allocations on the card. That means faster sequential write speeds to the card. They also allow for address saving. So in previous generations of SD cards, when you wrote to a block, you had to write to the block. And then if you needed to write to that block again and you didn't completely fill it, you had to pull everything out of there, save it to some other section, write to it, and then combine that data back together oh. in a data management sort of scenario. Uh, with this particular model, they save the address for the last portion of the written block in the table index for the cards so that they can continue writing where they left off on each of those block sections. The other thing they're allowing for is a multi-addressing for opening closing file writes simultaneously. Up to eight addresses can be done at the same time, which means now you can write up to eight streams continuously to your SD card with this newer standard. Uh, write speeds are expected to be in the 90 to 250 small m small b uh speeds so <coughs> keep that in mind um these cards you poor guy <laughs> no i'm dying here i apologize for everybody listen to me i've had bronchitis for uh, about three weeks now uh but the the thing is it feels like uh the standards and boards for uh the sd um ieee group is trying to bring this into the modern age and and the sd technology has kind of fallen by the wayside because they haven't kept up with the data requirements that people are wanting for uh, newer cameras and now they're adding those features uh, do you think we're going to see sd cards continue to be used in higher end cameras in the future or do you think it's just going to fall by the wayside in another lost format in the future uh i have a couple of thoughts Shocking, I know. Um, I hate SD cards. Hate them with passion. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago, I think. I, they're too damn small. They're, they, I, I don't know. Interestingly enough, <laughs> I don't suspect... You mentioned Canon going with the QXD. I don't think that's ever going to happen because QXD is a Sony format, ah. a Sony proprietary format. And they ain't going there because, I mean, primarily you can't uh, get a card that's a QXD card from any other vendor. Um, it's a Sony proprietary deal. Uh, I know Canon is liking CFast for, you know, the more professional bodies. Uh, the 1DX Mark II has a normal CF card and a CFast card slot. Uh, thank goodness they didn't go with SD cards in those bodies. I mean, if if it were me, if I'm a professional and I am expecting to use my professional body, I am not trusting SD cards for all the money in the world. I just don't like them. They're they're too fragile. And so, Canon, at least to answer your question, is specifically avoiding, I think, uh, QXD because it's a Sony thing. Ah. Uh. Yeah, and that's that's a good point, Mitch. Actually, CFast is is in yes. the One DX. You, you're absolutely right, and I didn't actually even think about the format wars. Uh, one provider makes it a little bit iffy, and Sony's yeah. tried to do that in the past with the the weird Sony proprietary long memory sticks and so on. Beta cam. Yeah the uh, the thing is about CFast though. Interestingly, uh, C uh, CF cards used to be a PATA standard, so they were writing in parallel, but they were limited by like 144, 160 meg a second write speeds because of PATA standards. And when they went to CFast, basically all they did was uh, implement SATA, 
serial writing capabilities into the CFAST format and allow for sequential writes as opposed to parallel writes. And because the clock speed is substantially faster, they're capable of writing quite a bit faster to the card itself. Uh, it's kind of weird that uh, that card format has followed the progression of computer hard drives yeah. uh, over the years. So, so how does how does this new SD format uh, compare to something like CFast in terms of speeds? So, in terms of speeds, it's going to be uh, substantially slower than the CFast format as far as writing to the card goes. Uh, you're limited because. The cards are so small with SD cards, and I'm holding up 128 gig. Uh, unlike Mitch, I still have a crap load of these that I write <laughs> on all the time. Um, the It's not going to be as fast. The capabilities are probably going to be capped out at around the 200 to 3. Or well, I'd say probably closer to 400 range, where the theoretical speeds for SATA, uh, they, they reach into the gig range. Now, right. will you ever actually see that in the card itself? Uh Probably not. I, it's possible. I shouldn't say probably not, but uh, it's unlikely that y- in the near term, uh, one will be substantially faster than the other. They'll probably be neck and neck, but on paper, CFAST is capable of writing way faster than uh, even this newest format. Now, they could come out with another another version of uh, the SD standard that allows for even faster writing. Uh, that's possible, uh, but in this current format, probably not. Yeah, cool. That's, Thank you. Yeah, super exciting SD cards. Uh, anyway, uh, those w- should be starting to pop up in the market in the next uh, year or so. Uh, useful applications include uh, time lapse sort of options as well as video recording simultaneously uh, for that multi stream mode. And if you're recording, I don't know, say four HD streams simultaneously onto an SD card, that would also be nice. Now, the next thing up here, and Mitch actually threw this at me first thing this morning, is the new DJI <laughs> Phantom 4. And interestingly, uh, they will be selling this directly from their site as opposed to uh, peppering it about other sales. But only for the first two months. Only for the first two months. Now, yes, Mitch after that, it won't be available. actually yeah. knows way more about this particular release than I do. And I was actually uh, complaining this morning that I get hit with so many drone stories these days drones. that it kind of drones on and on. And oh, uh, I stopped boy. paying attention. I got oh, that pun oh, in. Oh. So, Mitch, tell us about oh. the Phantom 4. This has some new technology that's pretty interesting. Well, you know, and, and as we talked in the pre-show, which is the most insanely cool part of the show that nobody ever gets to see, <laughs> um, <laughs> it's 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 intriguing, and we have to see it in actual use to know whether it's really working well. But they've they've got what they're calling basically, quote unquote, vision for for the Phantom DJI Phantom Four. It's fourteen hundred bucks, and if you watch the promo videos, it looks pretty amazing. In the fact that they are using sonar tracking of objects. Now, you know, you remember the lily that we talked about. The still never thing? got that, and I actually yeah. put good money down on that darn thing. I mean, the way those work, and there's several other of them on the market, and I, I actually have seen one, and I and I marked it. It's a wristwatch. It it goes on your wrist, and you unfold it, and you throw it. And anyway, that's a whole other side topic. Uh, but the lily, for example, in order to get it to follow you, you have to have a, a tracker unit on your body, right? So, or, or on the person you're tracking, or put it on your dog, or whatever. Now, the way they claim this DGI thing works is with the controller – you use your finger on the touch screen and you specify the object. You click on the ob- tap on the object that you want the Phantom 4 to follow, and it will follow that person automatically. Now, you know, we got to see how well that works. But the other side of that that's intriguing is that they theoretically have improved the sonar capabilities so that it won't run into walls and trees and big rocks or mountains or other things. And the videos are very impressive. 
you know, how promo videos are. They always look good. Uh, because, you know, you say, say you fly and you've got a five mile capability, kilometer range on this for 28 minutes. So say you fly it two miles away, you obviously can't see everything that's between you and it anymore. And you say, push the button and say, all right, come back to me. And there's a forest in the middle. And theoretically, it can figure out how to avoid all those trees and not go crashing to the ground uh, on its way back to you. Uh, again, whether or not those things work as advertised, we have yet to see, but they certainly make it look sexy. Sonar is one of those things that's useful for flat surface reflective tracking, but when you have a surface of multiple depths and easily absorbent of uh -huh. uh, reflective waves. Uh, you could, I can see you crashing into a tree pretty easily with this as opposed to, you know, smacking into a building. I, I would guess building avoidance would be uh, yeah. positive. Now you mentioned the lily here and because I put down good money and we'll probably never see this item, I do receive Aww. updates, uh, emails from them letting me know that they are still uh, attempting to work on the project. Here is the latest update from the lily. Uh, this is out of my inbox here and they have basically the, uh, watch done. Uh, <laughs> that's, that's about it. They're excited to tell you that the, they have finished designing uh, said watch. So good job there, guys, on that one. Uh, have they have they given you any kind of an estimate on shipping the lily itself? No, it's been pushed back a couple times. I'm guessing maybe if I'm really lucky sometime next year it might show up, at which point it will probably be irrelevant to that market. <laughs> yeah. So oh, just like a Kickstarter, Sorry. this is uh, – one of those projects that can sometimes be disappointing. Yeah. As far as drones go in general, I I find myself now when I need a, a aerial shot, I just hire somebody. Um, yeah. I tried messing around with it my, and flying my own, and I'm dangerous. I don't feel comfortable <laughs> uh, piloting something with sharp blades that is a Jinsu knife in the air. Uh, so I would rather have someone of a little bit higher skill set who practices flying uh, that particular type of device on a regular basis especially if you're lifting a large camera uh, some of the rigs i've used are i believe they require three people one person to pilot one person to operate the camera and another person to kind of i don't know what the other person does honestly but they're there maybe they're <laughs> management uh keeping the, the things together but uh is uh, it was a fairly uh, expensive project and uh we had a like a seven seven or eight thousand dollar drone and camera combination and it, wow. it, yeah it's I, I don't know I, I I'm scared to run something like that especially if it runs on gasoline as opposed to batteries uh, that's uh, getting into that danger zone that I just do not want to occupy yep. now yep. also I've seen so many uh, amateur and uh, non-amateur <laughs> drone pilots either crash drop it out of the sky or land in a lake uh their drones over the last couple of years and uh all of those make me fearful of flying something that is several thousand dollars into the oh, air yeah. Now, oh yeah on the other side if you are in the drone market uh, especially out here in portland uh you can find used dji two and one phantoms for two or three hundred dollars so uh wow. i don't know what's going on with the market maybe because they come out with new ones so fast yep they are not holding their value at all and there are a lot of those out there for the picking if you want to get started today i would recommend a flight simulator if you're going to start flying a drone uh using the flight simulator will get you at least uh, safe enough to operate the controls in a proper manner and uh, make sure that maybe if you can uh, fly it around in a park or somewhere safe away from people for the first couple of rounds before you <laughs> venture off to fly over someone's house for real estate videos or something yeah. like that because uh, also in carry insurance that's I, oh yeah amen to that <laughs> and and do whatever registrations are appropriate and buy a whole bunch of training i that's the one reason. I mean, it looks really cool to be able to say, oh, I want to fly over my neighborhood and see what it looks like from the air, right? Or I want to maybe have a cool shot for 
my next feature film that I'm doing, which I'm not. <laughs> but realistically, the expense of buying that thing and learning how to do it properly uh, far outweighs to me the, like you say, if, if I'm going to do it for one or two scenes in a, in a short or a movie, just hire somebody who knows what the hell they're doing uh, as opposed to buying that and doing it all myself. It's crazy. I mean, and that's potentially why there's so many of the DJI ones and twos and threes on the market is because people buy them and think they're going to use them a lot. And then they went, Oh, well, well, and another uh, pro tip, actually a lot of places what? in your area in, in cities, if you live in a city, uh, have clubs that uh, do RC copters and, and yep. that sort of thing. And there's usually a couple of people in there that have, uh, quadcopters uh, that are more than willing for a very reasonable fee to fly for you for half a day. And some of them, uh, I was shooting in, uh, I think it, I think it was Austin, but uh, we went to the the local club there, and they were like, "Oh, you're 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 making a, a movie? Uh, I would love to come out and get involved in that." And so, free gratis, they came out and filmed a couple of aerial shots for us, and it didn't cost a dime. Uh, we did, of course, take them out to dinner and, you know, uh, give them free copies of the, the flick and stuff. But, uh, uh, I mean, that's the sort of thing that's out there. People are just really excited to go do something with their drones. Yep. And yep. when they purchase these, it's the same thing with uh, aspiring filmmakers who buy a camera and then never film anything. Uh, they have this camera and they're sitting there waiting to film the next project, but they never put their own project together and they never really hook up with anybody that has something going on. So then the camera maybe films two or three things and becomes a paperweight around the house. And I suspect yeah. drones fall into that same category for yeah. many of us. Yeah. I'm sure that's true. Uh, I know a couple of people that have purchased them and then put them on the eBay market. <laughs> uh, speaking of eBay, uh, the fees on eBay are phenomenal. So if you are planning to sell your 5D Mark III, for example, uh, look to Craigslist. I was able to get basic eBay prices out of my item uh, without anybody bringing me a fictitious money order or a PayPal scam uh, on Craigslist uh, fairly fast and uh, efficiently. And the eBay fees now for a $2,000 item are somewhere in the range of like 300 bucks. Are you kidding? Yeah, it's it's out of control. I don't know what's oh going on with gosh. eBay, but they really take a big fat chunk out of you. And it's not just eBay. So, I mean, the, the total chunk is from all of the services provided, but right. there's the listing fee, there's the final value fee, and then when you receive the payment via PayPal, they take their chunk out of it. And by the time right. you're done with all those little sections, uh, you eat up several hundred dollars in value out of your item and with craigslist or craigslist being so prevalent in many markets if you can uh, move your items to someone that wants them in that area uh, that would be my recommendation for a little bit of savings on your resale that's a dadgum good tip and i didn't realize it had gotten that high that's I, I'm very familiar with PayPal because all of my sponsors pay me through PayPal. <laughs> and the fees, I'm like, oh, my God, isn't there some way that we could get around this two and a half, three percent fee on every frickin transaction? The other thing to, to think about if you're selling any of your gear is actually Amazon, surprisingly. Uh, Amazon's really? used market is uh, very well moderated and a, a thriving sort of method for selling your stuff. Uh, prices generally are close, if not identical, to what you get out of eBay. People can describe their items and the quality of the items, and there's a feedback and a rating system uh, for sellers. So if you want to sell your stuff used on Amazon, the fees are still... Uh, it's not It's not free to sell like it is on Craigslist, but it's right. reduced compared to the transaction fees that you incur via eBay and PayPal. So uh, another option that people often overlook. Uh, also, on the buying note, Amazon warehouse deals. Keep an eye out for those because uh, those darn people that buy the lens and test it out for a month and then send it back, that goes on discount, and you can buy yeah. those lenses for 
cheaper than otherwise. Do you use a service like Camel Camel, Camel 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 Camel, or whatever it is called? Yes, I do. Camel 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 is great. Uh, if you're not familiar with that, Where that's did they a, come up with that name. Uh, it's I think it's <laughs> to describe the ups and downs of the market. So no. as the camel has humps, that would be the top right. of the the right. price and the bottom right. of the price. So right. very good. Camel 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 tracks Amazon pricing, and you can go on there and see the lowest and the highest price that has been paid for an item for sale on Amazon. And if you're not familiar with this, Amazon tracks you and changes prices according to what you look at, how you look at it, and what demographic they think you are in. So the prices are not generally fixed. And huh. if you use Camel 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 and track those prices, you can often get a very good deal on things that would otherwise be more expensive. Great example is that System 10 wireless uh, unit I was posting about, I believe, right. last week or the week before. When I bought it, it was two forty, maybe two thirty-five, and now it is back up to three fifty. So oh. that is a hundred-dollar price swing. And if you're at the bottom of that curve, you're doing pretty good. If you're at the top of the curve, you just gave up a hundred dollars in value for the same item. So wow. just things to keep in mind, and those are seasonal fluctuations as well. So depending on what time of year it is, <coughs> man, I'm dying oh. here. Yeah, you are. I think. And on that note, I think that's the time for the end of the show before I die. Um, let's let's get out of here. All right. <laughs> okay. Mitch, where can people find you? Uh, planet, five, planet five D. Planet five D dot com or planetmitch.com. Uh, if you're again interested in being a reporter for free on the NAB show floor, hit me up at planetmitch@me.com and. Tune in next week for the awesome DSLR Film Noob podcast with me, and tune in on Sunday for the DSLR on the DJ. Uh, what did you call yourself? Never uh, mind. With Devin, two times a week you get this awesomeness. I don't know how you can turn this down. Find us on SoundCloud and iTunes, and rate us and give us all those good loving things, please. While you did my entire spiel for me, thank you, sir. Uh, no, I'm I try. On that note, I'm done. I'm done choking on my own <laughs> bodily fluids here. I would like to say thank you again for listening to another exciting episode of DSLR Film New Podcast. You can go to SoundCloud, iTunes, or anywhere podcasts are distributed. You can find me at DSLRFilmNoob.com and at DSLR Film Noob on Twitter. We will see you next time on another episode of DSLR Film Noob. Exciting. Exciting Exciting. So exciting. The best, but most exciting podcast ever!